Cove Productions presents the Solo in South Philly podcast with your host and local legal whiz, Wit Knowledge, Mark Kachi. What's good, everyone? Welcome to the Solo in South Philly podcast. Our season one is called Law School Reunion. And what we're going to do is go back, way back, back into time. Each episode, I will be reuniting with a different law school colleague. We will discuss what led them to law school, their law school experience, and what they do now. My guest today is Christian Y. Smith. Christian Y. Smith is a man of many talents. He's an attorney, nonprofit founder, children's book author, husband, father, and for seven years served as a prosecutor in Georgia. He has run for district attorney of Atlanta in 2020 and attorney general of Georgia in 2022. I met Christian in my last semester of law school. We had pre-trial class together with Professor Haddad. It was a smaller class, and let's just say Christian was the type of person that people gravitated towards. He had a laid back demeanor, yet also seemed very confident in what he was doing and where he was going. I've kept in touch with Christian since graduation and have admired some of the moves he's made. Also, Christian was a willing participant in a bucket list item of mine. I have this dream of seeing every baseball ballpark in America, and I was in Atlanta on business a few years back, and he took me to a Braves game. So thanks, Christian, for doing that for me, and also thank you for joining the program. Man, first of all, thank you for creating this platform. I think it's really, really cool that you want to explore, I guess, people's origin stories. And, um, you know, I, I remember you too from that pretrial class, you and your wife. Um, I had more classes with your wife before that one, but you've always been a really solid guy in my book. You know, I appreciate, you know, being connected with you over these years and being able to call you a friend. And uh, thank you for having me on, man. Congratulations on starting this, and, and I'm honored to be a guest. Thank you. Great. Yeah, thank, and thanks for those words. So life before law school, with some of the others that I've spoke to, I've started with undergrad. But I think with you, let's go a little bit back earlier than undergrad. Why don't you tell me about life growing up? You were from Cincinnati, correct? Born and raised there? Yeah, yeah. Born and raised in Cincinnati. And... I, I can truly say, man, I never envisioned myself being an attorney or being anything um, with any kind of, you know, perception of success. You know, I grew up uh, seeing a lot that I, I don't think, you know, kids should see. You know, I, unfortunately, I saw my mom get arrested a few times. Uh, I, I remember vividly being with my grandmother one time you know, myself and some of my cousins, when she went in, into a department store and she left us in a car and she never came back, police officers had to come and get us and bring us inside. And we saw her there, you know, handcuffed, stripped down in her underwear. Um, I have an uncle serving a life sentence for murder. And I can remember as a kid, you know, my grandmother and my mother taking my brother or and I, some of my cousins to go visiting. And as a kid, I never really understood why, but I think when I got older, it was to show us, you know, this is where you don't want to end up. And, um, you know, because of, I, I guess, my environment or my upbringing, you know, I started going down, um, you know, a slippery slope myself. I ended up getting kicked out of school uh, in the 11th grade. 
And at one point, you know, my mom lost custody of me. Um, I, I can remember paying rent for the first time when I was like 15. And I started selling stolen clothes out of the trunk of my car, came really, really close to selling drugs. Like that was just a natural progression. And that was, you know, with, with my uncles and my cousins and so many people from my neighborhood. That's what that's what they did to survive. And to me, that's what success looked like. You know, the, the folks who sold drugs had the nicer cars, the nicer clothes. But l- looking back now, they still lived in the same apartment complexes we lived in. So it's, it's kind of crazy just how, you know, perspective is everything, right? But uh, fortunately, you know, I, you know I, don't, I don't think any of us, you know, really understands why we get called to do certain things or, or the plan that God has, has for our lives. But I ended up being the first person in my family to graduate from college. And then, you know, after that, went to grad school, got a master's degree and went to law school. So, yeah, you know, my, my role to become an attorney is probably not uh, one that you hear every day. I mean, I know that everybody, you know, everybody's path is different. Everybody's overcome struggles. But, um, you know, growing up, my family, my neighborhood, I didn't even know anybody who went to college, you know, let alone knowing any attorneys. So, you know, when people ask me all the time, do I like being a, a lawyer? I, I love it. Like it's it's uh, it's the coolest thing ever to me. I think having a JD, you know, is the best degree that you can have because the, the possibilities are endless. That's awesome. Um, you mentioned I've heard you talk about there was a story or an incident when you were young and, and a police officer that sort of uh, had you change your path. Would you like to elaborate on that? Yeah. So you're talking about Officer William Dean Sr. Uh, I went to school, started seventh grade to 11th grade with his son, uh, William Dean Jr., or we call him Scott Dean. Uh, his initials are, are tattooed on me. One of my my group of friends, my lifelines, who I say who helped save my life. But um, yeah, I, w- I was getting into some trouble, not making the best decisions. But uh, Officer Dan or Coach Dan, as I called him, he was one of our football coaches, too. So the majority of my friends were raised by single moms, but Officer Dan was a single dad to Scott. So he would open up his home to us. We called his house the Batcave. It was it was our safe, our safe haven. And his mentality was, you know, he would rather us hang out at his house versus us being out in the streets. And so. You know, we we would all gravitate there, and a lot of us would pretty much live there because, you know, going back home for a lot of us wasn't, you know, the best conditions. But um, I found myself, you know, kicked out of school, you know, selling the stolen clothes out of the trunk of my car, and then uh, when I also when I was seventeen, I got questioned by the police about an armed robbery, and when that happened. He pulled me to the side and he just said, look, man, um, I see so much potential in you. I see leadership in you. I see he, he just he poured into me all of these great things that he saw into me that I never really heard anybody say to me before. And he said, look, man, you don't have to become you know, everything that you're seeing out here, everything that you're growing up in. He says you're better than that. And really, it was him, you know, 
pour, pouring those words into me and then looking back, like him even allowing us to, you know, just hang out at his house as much as he did. And, you know, he was a police officer. So like, you know, on the weekends, he worked a lot, but Sunday mornings he would be home. And so he would, no matter how many people were in the house, if it was two of us, if it was 10 of us on Sunday mornings, he would come home from work after working all night, Saturday night and cook us breakfast. Wow. So yeah, Officer Dean, man, every time I, I get a chance uh, to do you know one of these, an interview or talk about my my childhood, I always shout him out because he he is a very big reason as to why you know not that not that I'm here as an attorney, but why I'm still alive, why I never went to prison. So yeah, thank you, thank you so much for bringing that question up and allowing me to talk about that a little bit. Yeah, no, I, th- I thought it was a pivotal moment in your life. So you went to Northern Ohio, is that correct? No, Ohio University. But Ohio University. There you go, and that's in Athens. Yep, Athens. Okay. And so, what 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 led you there? So you you're getting you're getting the you're getting the exclusive stuff, man. These kind of questions don't don't normally come up. So <laughs> I I actually transferred there. So I started at Central State University. Okay, HBCU in Ohio. It's like I said, you know, kicked out of school, eleventh grade. Senior year, I transfer. Uh, I had to go to a different school, and I barely graduate. And you know, I, I again, it's, it's kind of that that conversation with Coach Dean or Officer Dean and some other stuff. I'm like, you know what? I'm gonna try college, even though I knew my grades were terrible. But I did pretty. I took the. I didn't take the SAT. I took the ACT, and I did okay on it. So. I applied to a bunch of HBCUs and got rejected by all of them except one, Central State. So I'm like, well, look, I got a chance. You know, I, I got a chance to leave this environment. I got a chance to leave this. Um, I mean, they call they call selling drugs trapping for a reason. I, had a, I got a chance to leave this trap where I felt like I was going to be trapped. So I went to Central State. But when I got there, I hated it. And I'm always careful when I talk about my experience at Central State because HBCUs, I believe, still aren't very important and they've played a very important role historically. But my HBCU experience was terrible. But I I tell it in a way where I'm not speaking negatively about HBCUs. But for me, when I got to Central State, move-in weekend, they had like a party for the incoming freshmen. Somebody got shot. Then Ohio was a weird state in that there was always, you know, this is back in 2001. So there were always these rivalries, like for no reason, like people from Cincinnati uh, just or people from Cleveland didn't like people from Cincinnati or people from Dayton didn't like people from Columbus. Just weird, kind of stupid. Or, Or as LeBron said, people from Akron didn't like people from Cleveland, right? Right. So but Central State is in the middle of a cornfield in Wilberforce, Ohio, which the, the, the next closest big city is Dayton. So Dayton pretty much has the home turf. And I remember one night, you know, so I guess some guys from Dayton got into it with some guys from Cleveland. So the Dayton guys brought all, you know, their cousins, their friends, everybody from Dayton came through the, through the freshman dorm and just destroyed the dorm. I mean, our big screen TV, the, the uh, vending machines, the bath. I mean, it, it was terrible. And I remember them 
waking up everybody in a dorm at like four in the morning to have like an emergency, you know, hall meeting. And I just remember sitting there thinking to myself, like, is this college or is this prison? Like it, it was always fights, the shooting, the break. I mean, it was, I was like, I, I came to college to escape this kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah. So one of my best friends, uh, Alan Shelton, he went to Ohio state and I didn't have a car at the time and he did. So pretty much every weekend for me to get out of central, Al would come pick me up. He would come pick me up. We either go back to Ohio state or we go back home to the net. So Halloween weekend, 2001, he picks me up. We go back to Ohio state. And while we're at Ohio state is in Columbus, Ohio. So while we're there, you know, everybody from his dorm, his freshman dorm and all of his friends and the folks we hung out with, they were all going to OU that weekend to Athens. Is Athens or, or Ohio University is, is known as having the second largest outdoor party in the country behind Mardi Gras in New Orleans. Like OU has like its own version of Mardi Gras for Halloween, which I didn't I didn't know any of this at the time. I didn't, I never even heard of Ohio University. <laughs> like, oh you, like where, where's everybody going? So I remember getting on a computer. You know, the old school computers with the, you know, the box screen <laughs> and, um, and Googled it. And, it, and I were, I'll never forget, like scrolling through the website, it looked like real college on TV. Not, you know, not that Ohio State didn't, but it just the way that they put their website together. I was like, man, I want to go there. There's like white girls jogging through campus. <laughs> <laughs> People playing volleyball, like in the sand. I, I, it just looked like the, the college you see on movies. And so um, I, initially I tried to transfer to Ohio State, but it, it's my freshman year. I didn't have enough credit hours to transfer. But for whatever reason, OU said, come on. So, you know, again, like something that doesn't you know normally happen, I transferred during my freshman year because at the time, uh, every those schools were on quarters. So I went to Central State, fall quarter, winter quarter, then spring quarter. I'd never been to OU, never saw the campus in person. I just fell in love with the website. And my my you know, I told you my grades in high school sucked, but at Central, I did pretty well in the classroom those two quarters I was there. And OU let me come and it was one of the best decisions I've ever made, man, was transferring to Ohio University. That's great. So what was it like coming home on breaks? You, uh, what I'm imagining two very different worlds in general, it's that experience. If you go away to college and it's a college town, that's world number one. And then coming home is a different world with family and all this other stuff. But for you, I feel the disparity is even larger. Um, what was that experience like coming home on breaks? It, it was crazy because um you know, like you, like you said, like the dynamics, everything, man, going, well, first going from an all black neighborhood where I grew up and going to Central State, there was a lot of familiarity with being an HBCU, but then and Central State was a pretty small school. Then I transferred to OU, Division One school, you know, over 20,000 people. I remember my very first class walking into like the theater style room where there's 600 people in class. And I'm like, whoa, like, this is crazy. But Racially, at the time, OU was the, it was like in the top 
10 for like most homogenous or PWIs in the country. There are only like 500 black students there. So it was, it was a different world. It was a culture shock, but then leaving that world after kind of adjusting to it, you know, figuring my way out, then coming back to Cincinnati where, you know, it's just back into, back to the hood. Um, I mean, it was, it, it was different. Like I tried to, I, I always tried to stay busy. Like I, I would come home and try to have a job when I came home for break. Cause something a little bit different about back then too, especially for like Christmas break, we got off from Thanksgiving to New Year's. So we had the entire month of December off. So you had enough time to get like a little part-time job or something like that. Uh, I was spending a lot of time at Officer Dean's house at the Batcave. Um, or, or sometimes I think toward my end of my college career, I would just stay at school just so I wouldn't have to come home. Gotcha. So you graduated from OU and then you went into the workforce, right? Didn't you work for hospitals or what, 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 what happened after graduation? So this is a, I got to tell the story too. So I majored in healthcare administration. You know, initially I thought my dream was to be a hospital CEO. So OU had this requirement where we had to do a, um, and, and they called it an externship in a hospital. But, you know, with the school being in Ohio, all of the connections were Ohio hospitals. But I knew I wanted to move to Atlanta because I, I partially grew up here too. Like my family's from here originally. You know, I spent a lot of summers and spring breaks down here because, you know, we had a free place to stay with relatives. So, you know, Atlanta has always been, I always tell people I have two hometowns. But I was on my own for finding an internship in Atlanta. I was a part of some student or like future healthcare executives or something like that. And a president, this guy named Greg Lee, was a part of like some real organization that costs money <laughs> to be a part of. <laughs> so, you know, I'm talking to Greg one day. He's like, hey, man, look, you can use my login and try to find, you know, somebody in Atlanta who can help you. So I, I go into this database he lets me go into. And the CEO of Grady Hospital, uh, his email address is in there. So I emailed the CEO, and to my surprise, he responds. And he's like, look, talk to this guy named Mark Racky. Mark should be able to help you get an internship. And, you know, I look forward to meeting you, blah, blah, blah. So I'm, I'm hitting up this guy, Mark, for like two months and calling like he me and his assistant like we know each other on a first name basis i'm calling so much but he's like look man i you know i just don't have anything for you right now so it's coming down to the wire of my school telling me like look if this atlanta thing don't work out you're gonna have to go to one of these ohio hospitals or you're not gonna graduate on time so at the time i was driving a 1985 chevy caprice classic and I was worried that it might not make it the nine hour drive down to Atlanta and a nine hour drive back. So a friend, Jessica Skosik, had a brand new 2005 Toyota Echo. And I, I asked a few friends, I was like, look, I got a crackhead question for you. I need to borrow your, I need to borrow your car <laughs> to, to Atlanta. 
And so Jess was probably like the 10th person that I that I asked. And she was like, yeah, you can borrow my car. So I drive down to the A. I get here. It's Friday, March 11, 2005. And I pull up at Grady's campus. There's police cars. I mean, as far as I can see, there's news vans as far as you can see. And George W. Bush was the president at the time. And I remember thinking, I was like, man, a president must be here. Like just the heavy police presence, the heavy media presence. And so I'm driving two miles an hour, got on my shirt and tie. don't know where I'm going. Driving this car with Ohio plates. And then these cops just swarm the car. And then two cops, AR-15s, get out the car. You know, oh, my God. Drag me out of the car. I'm like, yo, what I do? And, you know, they pat me down, you know, take my life. I'm at gunpoint the whole time. They never tell me what what happened or what I did. So, you know, they see my license, Ohio license. They check the back of the car, see the Ohio plates. They're like, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm looking for an internship. Like, what's going on? So they're like, all right, you know, just keep going that way. So once I get inside, I find out that this dude named Brian Nichols just killed a judge, a court reporter, a cop. And I think he shot one other person and he escaped from the courthouse. And so there was a manhunt for this guy and they had just brought the judge and the other victims to Grady. So I guess I fit the description for wow. Brian Nichols. And uh, yeah, that, that's, a, that's a name that a lot of people down here in Atlanta know. And then I'm kind of jumping ahead, but I'm gonna come back. You know, when I eventually became an assistant district attorney in Fulton County, like that building to this day, you're not allowed to use the staircases in that building because of Brian Nichols. When he escaped, he escaped through the staircase. And so now, I mean, that building is, I don't know, 15, four, I mean, it's a very, it's a, it's a pretty big, tall building. And, you know, there's always a long line at the elevators because you don't have the option to take the stairs because of that day. But anyway, I get inside, uh, get to Mark Racky's office, and he's like, look, I appreciate your persistence and you driving down, but I still don't have anything for you. He's like, and as, a, as a matter of fact, I'm on my way to a meeting, so you can stay here, hang out, and when I get done, you know, I'll talk to you. His phone rings. The person he was about to meet with called to cancel the meeting, and he said, well, look, I got this kid here who just drove down from Ohio looking for an internship. You want to talk to him? So her name was Sarah Killian. She was the director of patient care and women's health. She brought me over. And this just goes to show you like how young and dumb I was. I thought all I had to do was show up and I would get the internship. I wasn't prepared for an interview. <laughs> so, <laughs> so she's asking questions like, you know, why do you want to be here? And I'm like, because uh, my school was telling you, I, I, I wasn't prepared. At all. <laughs> Terrible, probably the worst interview of my life, but. She ended up giving me the internship. Um, so I know it took a long time to answer your question. So, yes, after the internship and I graduated, I didn't get a job right away. It took a few months. So because I didn't have a job right away, I remember seeing a billboard for uh, a grad school program here. It's Troy University. It's a, another Division One school. It's in Alabama, but they have a... a, a satellite campus here in Atlanta. And the, the, this particular billboard, though, said get a master's degree in healthcare management. So that's why it stuck out to me. And so I'm like, man, you know, I don't 
I don't have a job like I thought I have a job, but I'm like, I don't know what I need to do to apply for grad school. So I'm like, let me figure this out, see if there's enough time. And thankfully, um, I, so I ended up having to take one more class before I could graduate. I had to do like a summer quarter for one class. So during that time, you know, I took the uh, the GRE and did everything that I needed to do to go to grad school. So by the time I came back to Atlanta after I graduated that summer, I'm in grad school full time. And then finally, I got a call back from Grady uh, about a job working in their AIDS clinic. And it started off paying $8.73 an hour. Wow. And I remember when, I, when they made the offer, I'm like, $8.73? Like, I didn't go to college to make $8.73 an hour. And I was living with my aunt and my uncle at the time. And my uncle said, well, how much are you making now? I was like, nothing. He was like, well, 873 sounds like a lot more than nothing to me. So, <laughs> so yeah, man, I took that job. Uh, I was doing like medical records in the AIDS clinic. And I was in grad school full time coming out of undergrad. That's a heck of a journey. That's a heck of a second leg of the journey. I I never heard that about that uh, leg of the story. So that's thank you for sharing that. So I assume you, you graduate with your master's. How'd you end up at the Thomas M. Cooley Law School? So coming out of undergrad, I was in a weird place where it was hard to get a job. These folks were like, well, you don't have experience. And then after I got my master's degree, I was in another weird spot where folks were like, well, you're overqualified because you have a master's degree. But I'm like, well, I don't have experience. So... <laughs> It was, a, it was a weird space. And I had a, a conversation with uh, one of my boy, a good friend of mine. His name is Dorian Spence. He's an attorney in D.C. Does great work, man. He does like civil rights litigation all across the country. Uh, I actually had the opportunity to work with him here in Georgia to get some, uh, some old Confederate racist monuments torn down. But anyway, he he was going to law school right out of undergrad. And one day we were chilling in his apartment. He was like, Freeze, you sorry. My nickname growing up was Freeze. So a lot of people who knew me growing up still call me that. He's like, Freeze, you need to go to law school. And I'm like, man, I ain't with that law school stuff. Like, I'm just trying to get this hospital job. And you know, he was like, nah, bro. He was like, I see it. And he was like, I think law school would be perfect for you. So you know, going back to me finding myself in that weird spot after getting my master's degree, I'm like, you know what? Maybe law school will be the icing on the cake. You know, maybe if I have a JD, that will help separate me from the rest of the pack for folks who are trying to be, you know, hospital administrators, just having that, that level of education. So, you know, start studying for the LSAT. You know, I, I couldn't afford to take one of the LSAT prep classes, so I bought, like, LSAT for dummies. I think my boy Spence gave me, like, his old Kaplan book. And then I took a couple of, like, the free practice LSAT, you know, tests that yep. offered. Um, but my LSAT score sucked, man. I took the LSAT three times. Highest score was a 146. And... Kind of like undergrad, you know, I'm applying to all of these schools like, well, you know, maybe all they can say is no. And everybody said no. And at the last minute, 
another friend that I grew up with, uh, whose name is also tattooed on one of my best friends who you know grew up in the back cave with Coach with Officer Dean, uh, Montez Mason. He went to law school. He was at the University of Toledo. And so he was like, man, he was like, have you heard of Cooley Law School? I'm like, nah, never heard of it. He was like, I think you should apply there. He was like, you'll probably get in. But he was like, that school, they kick a lot of people out. So he's like, if you get in, you got to go in and grind. Like, you can't be one of the, the folks that get kicked out. But he was like, it's, you know, based off your undergrad GPA, your, your uh, LSAT score, you should potentially be able to get into Cooley. So I'm like, okay, let me give it a shot. So I apply, get in, uh, and this is 2006 for me to start in the fall of 2007. Uh, and, and I got in. But, you know, I, like I mentioned earlier, I was living with my aunt and my uncle at the time. And my aunt ended up getting really, really sick uh, with breast cancer. So I ended up, like, right before I finished grad school, I quit my job at Grady. And so I was just in school for a time, but I was kind of like her caregiver for a time. I was taking her to all of her chemo appointments, all of her doctor's appointments. And I was pretty much, you know, with, with her up until, until she passed. And she she passed in September of 2007. So um, I knew I couldn't leave to go to Michigan to go to law school. So I'm like, man, like, you know, I want to go to law school, but is there a way that I can kind of put this off. And I remember doing or calling somebody at Cooley and they're like, yeah, you can defer your admission. So I deferred my admission for a year um, to the fall of 2008. Um, and it, it, this, I mean, like I said, you're getting all of the exclusives, man. I've never had to tell this part of my journey before because these questions don't ever come up. But yeah, I was supposed to start at Cooley in 2007. My aunt passed, I deferred my admission. And then during that year, uh, my my oldest, my son was was born during that time. So I, you know, when I look at my son, I'm like, man, you must have a, a really special, you know, calling and purpose in life because, you know, I should have been in Michigan. And uh, but during during that time is when he came along, and when I started at Cooley in the fall of 2008, I was also a new dad. He was six weeks old, so I was figuring out, you know, how to be a dad and, and all of the stuff that goes with that, along with, you know, trying to figure out the grind of what law school was going to take. Yeah. Thank you for sharing all that. So I have a lot of takes on this. Let me know what you think, right? I'm talking about the LSAT process. Mm -hmm. So I know there's people that are, that speak heavily against the LSATs, <clears throat> that whole institution. I have a little bit of a different take. And the problem is that, all you need is an undergrad in the United States. You need an undergrad degree. It could be in anything to go to law school. There's limited number of spots because generally back in the day, classes would be limited to like 200. It's really hard to equalize somebody, put, you know, put, measure everyone. You may have an engineer from MIT and you may have someone who graduated an underwater pencil sharpening degree from some, you know, <laughs> clown college. So you create this test. And it's in some ways it, it, it puts people on an even playing field. The problem with it is I don't think, and you'd probably agree that it, it translates to what you learn in law school or what kind of lawyer you're going to be. Yeah. The, the other thing is 
I personally think certain people are naturally wired to, to do well on that test. So they could, I, I know a lot of people that just roll out of bed and take this exam. If you don't have that innate ability, like, cause there's like these crazy logic games, which require this level of spatial intelligence that some people don't have. Most people don't have. So if you don't have that, you have to learn it and there's ways of doing it. And some people never get it. Some people spend thousands of dollars on tutors. Not everyone has that. So in many ways, the institution is depriving themselves of people that would go on to be great attorneys. So our alma mater did a wonderful thing in recognizing all of that and saying, look, we'll take a chance on you and you put in the work. If you make it through here, the rest is up to you. And it, it sounds like it, it gave you that opportunity. Would you, would you agree with some of my takes on this? Yeah, wholeheartedly. Because I had a conversation with Professor Hicks, uh, Jim Hicks, who, I mean, he's family. Love him and his family to death. I was actually talking to his wife, MB, uh, Mama Hicks, last night. Um, Professor Hicks was, you know, for everybody listening who went to Cooley, especially if you were there when we were there. I mean, he was like a legend, property professor. Like, I remember my first year when I took him for property one, like everybody who had for property one, we waited a year to take property two until he taught it again. But anyway, uh, he became, he and I became really close at Cooley and he became a mentor and and family. And uh, just throughout the years, I remember at one point us having a conversation kind of like, you know, what you just spoke about. And he told me that the LSAT was designed to measure how well somebody would do their first semester of law school. Not your first year, not the three years, not what kind of lawyer you would be. But uh, the the law school rankings, you know, they play a big, or at least historically, they always played a big role in, uh, you know, the Harvards, the Yales, the, the schools like that, being able to you know, get the the students that they got. Um, it, 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 it all went, it, it was all geared towards that. And so, you know, Harvard or Yale, they wanted to take sure bets. Like they didn't want to have folks probably like me, who they're like, oh, well, I don't think this kid will make it. And then you get kicked out or you fell out. And then that impacts, you know, their, their statistics and, you know, their ranks, you know, and that tier one, tier two, all of that crap that law schools do. So um, you're right, man. I, I'm super grateful that Cooley gave me a shot. You know, I, I know that Cooley has done some stuff. I, I think that we could say might be questionable about, you know, their business practices or some of the other things that they've done. But, you know, when it comes to that and, and giving somebody like me a shot, you know, obviously I wouldn't be here if they hadn't. And I don't know if you remember this. I remember this vividly in orientation. We had orientation back in the, the old temple building, which I don't I don't think exists anymore. Yep. But I remember some, I don't remember who it was talking, but they were like, look to your left, look to your right. You know, all of you, you won't see all of these faces at graduation. And I, that just stuck with me. I'm like, man, I don't know about you on my left and you on my right, but I'm going to be there. <laughs> <laughs> And, and, and that's, you know, that's what happened. I remember, man, my, you know, that first term, you know, taking, I had crim law with sweat low, contracts with, ugh, I don't remember. 
um, the torts one with uh, Palmer. And then I remember we came back after, what was it, Thanksgiving or Christmas or whatever break we had after the first term. Because, you know, your first year, they put you in those sections where you're pretty much with the same people. Yep. And I remember coming back after that first break and just seeing like a huge drop off of people who didn't make it. And even some people who I was, you know, had gotten to, to know a little bit that first time were like, yeah, man, I ain't make it. Uh, yeah. Um, you know, Cooley gave us a shot. But once we got in, it was up to us to make it happen. Yeah. Agreed. So tell tell me about life in law school. What was life in law school for you? It was hard at first because, um, you know, I was I was a new dad, and I remember, you know, I didn't have enough money. Kind of like when I transferred to OU, like I didn't have enough money to go up to Lansing to kind of like scout it out, find some place to live, you know, familiarize myself with the area. I found a, a a house on Craigslist because I'm like, okay, I don't know about the apartment complex situation. So let me find a house that's close enough to campus that will have everything we need, which was, you know, enough space in the washroom dryer since it got cold there. We didn't have to go to a laundromat. So I had enough money to drive from Atlanta to Michigan with a U-Haul trailer on the back of my truck. You know, show up to this house, sight unseen. I had enough money to pay my first month's, you know, to pay the deposit, my first month's rent. I think I had like a hundred bucks left after that. I'm like, I don't know how I'm gonna buy diapers. I don't know how I'm gonna pay the next month's rent. Because at, at that time, like my financial aid stuff hadn't come through yet either. But you know, I just took that leap of faith and believed that, you know, that's that I was supposed to be there. Um so once, you know, the financial aid stuff came through, that kind of, you know, took a big burden off my shoulders, at least about being able to, you know, provide financially. But then the school part came and then, you know, having to put so much time in, because I think our classes were like three hours long or something yep. crazy like that. Yep. Then <laughs> it's the studying afterwards, which is, you know, a, a, a whole day thing. Then coming home to, you know, a newborn. And my ex, you know, she's uh, originally from Georgia. So, you know, all of her family was still down here. And, you know, she's pretty much at home by herself all day with, with this baby while I'm, you know, doing the school thing. So things were, were really rough, you know, that my first term. But I would say the light for me really clicked my second year. Um, and I'll share this now for anybody who's listening, because uh, I've used it from that day to this day and will we'll always use it. I remember Professor Hicks. He was like, man, the key to law school is under here, therefore. It's like under, you know, this law, OCGA 40-2-8, whatever. You know, you state the law. Then here, you give the facts. Therefore, conclusion. So I, I just remember having a conversation and he was like, you know, students think, and, and this was, he was no longer my professor. So it wasn't like he was doing anything he shouldn't have been doing. But he was like, a lot of, a lot of law students think you have to write volumes and volumes and volumes to get a high grade. And I think we all thought that way, like, man, like we got to just say everything and, you know, write like 50 pages on, on our final. 
But he was like, man, professors don't want to see all that. <laughs> he was like, we want to see you get in, get out, get straight to the point. And he was like, a lot of people don't know how to frame their thoughts. So he was like, man, under here, therefore, that helps you keep it, you know, frame nicely, explain it the way you need it to explain. It. And he was like, trust me, he's like, you know, that's how you're going to present your stuff in court one day. And, you know, once I got that, you know, my second year, man, it was like my my coming out year. You know, my second year, my grades started going up. I started getting involved in some student orgs. Um, I, I ended up get, being on the Law Journal and being on the, the exec board of the Law Journal. Was on some other student orgs. I actually created a student org. Um, and then, you know, stuff with, with uh my son and his mom was was better too. They ended up moving back to Georgia, but her mom worked at Delta so that they could fly for free. So it was like once a month they were coming up to Georgia. Then on all of our breaks, I was coming back down here to be with my son. So you know that was working so that you know she wasn't alone and she had her support system. And I was you know able to do my thing with school. And you know my third year was um was fun. I mean, I, I can say that. I mean, it was still a grind. You know, I don't want to sugarcoat past that or make it seem like, you know, any of it was easy because <laughs> that's not the case at all. You know, I remember the way I used to do it. If I had class in the morning, you know, I would knock out those three hours of class and go study for an hour. Then I would take a lunch for an hour. Then I would study again for like three hours, take a break, probably another three hours, eat dinner, you know what I mean? And then kind of just relax a little bit. I might watch a TV show or two, then eight o'clock from like eight to 11, studying again. Then it's like time to go to bed, do the same thing over the next day. But, you know, I think we learn how to work the system a little bit. Like, you know, you could kind of, uh, you know, I don't want to say take it easy, but like not study as intensely, maybe the first, you know, 10 weeks or so. Then yep. Yep. Around week 10, <laughs> that's when you that's yep. when you step on the gas. But um, you know, the biggest thing I tell I tell people all the time too for me that came from law school were the relationships. Like like this now, I'm talking to you. I mean, we I graduated 11 years ago, 12 years ago, 11. I, you know what I mean? Just the relationships that I know I'll have for life. Right. You know, being able to call Professor Hicks or his wife or any of his four kids or, you know, I got friends, you know, all over the country now that, you know, I went to law school with. So, yeah, it was rough at first, but toward the end, man, it was, you know, I'm thankful for those three years. You know, those three years really, um, really changed me. And I, I was telling my wife this recently, like, the way you learn kindergarten through undergrad or even grad school is, is very different than how you learn in law school. So I think we're raised on, like you, you consume all of this information and you regurgitate it on the test. But law school learning is very different. And I think once we've been trained and wired that way, like we can never turn it off. Like we have to pay attention to where every comma goes, where every, <laughs> you know, every, symbol of punctuation you know what i mean we, we just have to pay attention to so much uh attention to detail and so you know when i'm having conversations with people <laughs> and my wife gets pissed off all the time like if she if she'll say like maybe or if she'll say 
I did. I, I mean, I can't think of a good example right now. But I'm like, well, you just said maybe. And she'll be like, no, no, I didn't. It's kind of stuff that I think human beings will say casually in conversation all the time. But as, you know, as an attorney, like I'm paying attention to those words because those words mean something different. So, yeah, it's, it's funny you say that. You can't turn it off. I had a boss in a recent review tell me, you're always hedging your words. You're always saying, based on my based on my understanding. <laughs> he's like you gotta own it you gotta own it and i'm like yeah but they could take that statement out of context and use it against me but but, but, but you're right you're right so I, I know what he meant um but i understand why i did what i did yeah. and uh go, going back to what you said I, I think you're in agreement with what my philosophy is is that law school like many things in life but law school is about working smarter and not harder right and that little trick that Hicks told you or the way to look at things, that's something that you learned. The knowledge was all there, but it was a different way of like executing on an exam or executing on, on a brief that you're writing. Yep. And I feel that a lot of people that did well early on, they knew who to talk to. They knew certain tricks. Like, for example, um, our school let you take prior exams. Like that I felt was a must. Um, I know I, someone gave me the idea to submit uh, prior exams to an upper classman and have them graded, that sort of thing. Um, the outlines, the, the memorization, the doing the multiple choice by the batches. Like uh, when, when those grades came out, a lot of people that the first couple of semesters that did really well, it's because they figured out those tricks worked smarter. Um, and that's why what you said too, about things getting easier towards the end. Yeah. You realize, wait a minute, it's week five. I can, I can go out and party because at the end of the day, I need to build this outline. I need to have it memorized by final time and be able to move on it. One particular case, two particular cases that I'm reading right now is not the difference maker. Right. I need to look at this. I need to look at the big picture of this. Would you yeah. agree? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Is it, you know, think about our first term where we briefed every case we read. You had your notebook with your brief in it. And I think by second term, you were probably just doing a brief, like writing the notes in your book. Then after that, it's like, if you get caught on in class, like, I don't even need the brief anymore. Like, I, I know what I'm looking for. I know what I'm doing now. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Yeah. All right. So you graduated. Tell me about bar prep, bar exam, bar prep, all that fun stuff. Another big blessing for me, I remember walking through the main lobby. You know, there was always something going on in the, the main lobby in, in the main Cooley building. And uh, there was a Barbary table one day. And the Barbary, like she wasn't a student. She, I guess she was like the supervisor. I, don't, I can't remember her, the, the director, whatever. She was there. And I remember saying like, hey, like, you know, what is the what's the benefit for students doing this, like working for Barbary? And she was like, well, one, you know, you get a little paycheck, like you get a little bit of money, but she was like, two, you get to take, you get the bar prep class for free, which oh, wow. bar prep classes were thousands of dollars. And I was like, word. I was like, are you hiring? <laughs> <laughs> and she was like, yeah. She was like, you want to do it? I'm like, absolutely. So you know, I signed up. And, you know, I don't remember what the the requirements were. I mean, we had to work a certain number of hours a week. 
But I remember by my third year, um, me and a guy, another great friend, uh, Steve Fantetti. We oh, yeah. Yeah, that, that's that's my brother, man. Like he's he's practicing down in Tampa, Florida. When I go down to Tampa, I hit him up. Uh, he's actually called me on some stuff up here in Atlanta. You know, like great guy, like again, relationships. But um, he and I became like the, again, I forget whatever term we use at the time, but we became like the co-managers for, for Barbary, which meant we got like a raise and we I think we got to set like everybody's schedules. But yeah, thankfully, man, because of Barbary uh, working as a rep, I got to take the bar prep class for free. And so um, when I, I graduated in September of 2011, which meant I missed taking a bar in July. So the next, you know, the upcoming bar for me was February. And I remember a bunch of people saying that the February bar was a little bit harder because less people took it. So I think the curve was like different than the July bar or something like that. And the mistake that I made, so I, I failed the bar the first time I took it past the second time. The mistake that I made the first time was listening to everybody else. You know, so I ended up doing an internship at Grady Hospital again, my last uh, term at Cooley. Is that Cooley, we had to do an externship too. Right. I did mine in the law department of Grady Hospital here in Atlanta. And, you know, all of those attorneys working in that, that department, they were all giving me their two cents on how to pass the bar. And the consensus with all of them came down to making flashcards. I didn't make a single flashcard <laughs> my three years at, at law school. So I spent, I wasted so much time, like trying to make flashcards and trying to basically study a different way than I had my three years that I walked into that bar just not really that confident. Um, and I missed it by a few points. I mean, like three points. So when I took it again in July, I said, you know what? I'm going to do what got me here. I'm going to do what got me through my three years. And for me, like, I, I have to study in quiet. Like, I can't study in coffee shops. I, I can't do the study group thing. I like to lock myself in a room and just grind ground it out. Um, and at Cooley, I, I didn't you I didn't go to the library a whole lot because there was you went to the library, you're gonna see friends, you were gonna especially I mean, I was, you, especially you. <laughs> yeah, like I, right. You'd be, you be getting dapped up every five seconds. You yeah. <laughs> break your concentration. <laughs> I made my rounds to the library, you know, every now and again I would go to Michigan State's library. But once I got on a law journal, the law journal office became my safe haven because at night, you know, nobody's using it at night. Nobody's on campus. So I could go in there and lock myself in there and be by myself. Um, or I would go find like an empty classroom that, I, you know, I knew nobody would come in there. I'd be by myself. So anyway, studying for the bar, um, I, I and I, I'm sure we'll come back to this to go in more detail, but the job I got coming out of law school I worked for an Atlanta City Council woman who was also an attorney. So, you know, we were we were kind of like, um, you know, regrouping, trying to figure out what I did wrong the first time, what I need to do the second time. And so I told her about, you know, how I was studying. I need how I need to get back to, to my thing. 
So she was like, look, you know, I got a law office down in Stockbridge that I never used. So she was like, if you need a quiet place, she was like, Here, here's the key. Then she was like, um, and, on, and on the weekends, she was like, you can actually come here to City Hall. She was like, you have access to this building 24-7, which I didn't know. And I've been working there for however long I was working there, maybe a year at that point. She was like, yeah, on weekends or whenever, if you want to come late at night, she was like, you got access 24-7. So Monday through Friday, I would go to her law office, like nine to five. I would leave, go, you know, see, and at this point now I have two kids, my a son and a daughter. So I would leave, go eat dinner with them, get the kids a bath, you know, get them ready for bed. Then, you know, during the week, Monday through Friday, then I would just study some more at night before going to bed. But on the weekends, I would leave them, go back downtown to City Hall, to my office in City Council. And let's let's say I get there at like 10 at night, like I'm studying until like maybe two in the morning. And then my boss, like she had a, she had a sofa inside of her office. So I would take the cushions off, put them on the floor. And I slept on the floor in the office. Then I would wake up Saturday morning, grind, get it. Then, you know, take a lunch break, grind till five, go see the kids, eat dinner, put them to bed. And Saturday night, back there, sleeping on the floor, wake up Sunday, doing it. You know, so that's that's how I made it through the second time. What did it feel like when you passed? <laughs> can, can you can you even describe that feelings those feelings can you even put it in words man <laughs> so i don't drink right but i had this i had this bottle of uh a bottle of moe uh champagne that so before i went to law school i worked overnight at a I'm not going to say it's not a five star hotel. It's a hotel that a lot of like black celebrities, you know, stay at in Atlanta. They have condos there, too. A lot, you know, a lot of Falcons players live there. A couple of celebrities live there. So, you know, somebody gave me this bottle of champagne. I'm like, I don't drink, but I'm like, I'll keep it. So the day the bar, Georgia is always one of the last states to get results. So I remember the day that the results were coming out. Uh, I want to say it's like October 26th. 2012. Um, when I went to work that day in city council, I took this bottle of champagne with me. I had it in my backpack. So I'm like, when I get my results, like I'm popping this bottle in city council. <laughs> and so, um, you know, the, when the, you, they put the results on the website and, you know, so many people were trying to get on at, you know, whatever time they release them, let's say two o'clock, the website crashed. So now, like, you're waiting, you refresh, refresh, refresh. Like, you're waiting for it to come back up. And so when it finally comes back up, I'm scrolling all the way down to, you know, my Smith is always at the bottom. And at first, I don't see my name. So I'm like, damn, like, I failed again. But I was going too fast that I, I so I'm like, I said, like, nah, my name has got to be here. Then I was like, oh, I went past my name. So I was like, let me go back. And when I saw it, I mean, the office was like, I mean, you could hear a pin drop. It was quiet. The next day you just hear me, yeah, like you just, <laughs> but every, everybody that I worked with, I, they knew that it was coming out that day and they knew what time. So I think everybody was kind of nervous for me. And I think that's why I was so quiet. And then like once I erupted, like the other folks in the other offices around me erupted too. And, you know, so I'm, I pulled a bottle of champagne out of my backpack. 
and I'm running around, you know, like you said, everybody's dapping me up, hugging me. And I'm like, man, I'm going to drink some of this champagne. So I open it and I'm pouring glasses for everybody else. And I didn't drink any, but it was, um, it, that was a fun day, man. And then one of my, another one of my you know best friends, childhood friends that I grew up with, uh, Mike Matthews, uh, also tatted on me. He played in the NFL uh, for a few years. And he won a Super Bowl with the Giants, uh, the David Tyree helmet catch against uh-huh. Uh-huh. Super Bowl. So he he played football uh, in college at Georgia Tech. So he he happened to be in town that night. So you know, doing my thing in the office, and then that night I went out with him and his wife. And um, yeah, man, that was I I'll never forget that feeling, man. I'll never forget that day. What what was yours like? What what's your what's your story? <laughs> um, so I was at work and like I, I took it in Pennsylvania, <clears throat> and um, you're you're constantly checking every day. Then the day before, they say that the results are coming out tomorrow. They don't say what time, so it's it's nerve wracking. You're sitting through it the whole day, and I uh, I go to check, and there was something with the internet connection that at my work for some reason, I don't know why it was blocked. So I couldn't, I, it was like, I couldn't get in. So I, uh, I had to go outside. I call a, one of my childhood friends from back home and have to tell him to go check the internet. Let me know if he, he found it. And he did. And I passed. And, um, I, like for whatever reason, I didn't want to make a big deal of it. Like I didn't really tell anyone at work that I was studying for the bar. Like People thought I went on vacation because I, I was working full time and people, I came back and people were like, oh, how was your vacation? I was like, mm, was anything but a vacation. <laughs> uh, so I, I, I come back and I, you know, I think I just told the person next to me. She was the only person that knew. And she must have, you know, I go back to doing my job and she t- she managed to tell everyone. She must have sent a secret email to the whole group. And it was it was a thing of beauty. I was sitting there doing work and there's this line of people coming up, shaking my hand, wishing me luck, congratulating me. So, um, yeah, it was, it's a beautiful thing. You know, everyone it happens in different ways, but it's just all that work you put in and you finally have that relief, um, yeah. that, that it's behind you. Yeah. So, but yeah, no, thanks for asking. So, all right. What, did you go straight to the prosecutor's office after that? Or how, how did, how did you get into the legal field once you passed the bar? So, <clears throat> excuse me. So, yeah, so I, I was fortunate in that I got the city council job before I graduated from Cooley. So I, I'll never forget, like I finished my, my externship on a Friday. Then it was like August 15th, 2011. That Monday I was working in city council you know, then get through failing the bar the first time, and now I pass it. Um, and I, I want to say before I got my bar results, it, like in the city council chambers, I met the prosecutor for the city. So Georgia, I know every state is different. So in Georgia, we have a city solicitor. That's like your prosecutor for, you know, traffic tickets, local ordinances, you know, I think the most severe crime is probably DUI. Then you have a state solicitor who they handle like the high 
the high and aggravated misdemeanors like vehicular homicide. Then you have the district attorney, you know, your felonies, then you have the U.S. attorney. So this is the city solicitor that I'm meeting, uh, city council. And the deputy clerk of the city introduces him to me. And, you know, he's just talking to me. He's like, yeah, you know, I got about 30, 30 lawyers who work for me. And then just without even thinking, I was like, you take 31? <laughs> so, you know, he was like, well, hey, man, he's like, you know, come by my office, come talk to me. And then after you get your bar results, you know, we'll see. So, yeah, I go meet him and um, I got sworn in December 7th, 2012. And then in January of 2013, I was in the uh, in the city prosecutor's office. But, that, you know, that was a job I wasn't sure that I was going to take because, one, you know, my, my upbringing, right? Like, you know, my family has known the, the justice system from the defense side of the table. And I remember I called my cousin Marcus. Uh, he's a he's a music artist, a rapper. You know, he goes by Lantana. He actually had um, a pretty big hit a few years ago. Um, but from age 19 to 23, he started four years in prison. And so, I, you know, I was like, man, you know, what, what you think about me taking this job working in a prosecutor's office? You know, I, you know how, how you think folks in the hood going to look at this? You know, how, you know. He was like, man, take it. He was like, people like us don't work in, in the courtrooms. He was like, you'll be somebody there who, like, you'll get it. Like, you'll be able to help people because you'll understand where they're coming from. Like, you'll be able to see things differently. So he was like, take the job, man. He was like, I don't know how or when, but it's like, you're going to be able to help somebody if you take that job. And then all of the mentors that I had gained to that point, is, you know, at the time, too, I'm still thinking that my dream or my journey is to be a hospital CEO. So I'm like, you know, city council yeah, kind of took me off that path a little bit. But I took the city council job because the general counsel in Grady, when I told him I got offered that job, he was like, look, man, well, I don't have the money to hire you. But if you work in local government politics, if you can navigate those waters, you can work anywhere. And he said, plus the relationships, the people that you will meet, the folks who come through City Hall, it was like, you know, everybody. So, I, I, you know, I wasn't trying to hear that. I had two kids. I'm like, man, I need a job. So I took the job. But all of that stuff, you know, came to pass how he said it. So now all of my mentors are like, well, you know, trial skills, you know, being in a courtroom, um, going through the, the the practice of having a trial, the the um you know, courtroom presence, thinking on your feet, public speaking, all of those are things or skills that, you know, will transfer to anything you want to do later. So I'm like, all right, you know, I'll take the job. And both jobs I hated initially. I hated city council at first because I didn't know anything about politics, didn't care about it. It, 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 it was like being dropped in a foreign country and not knowing the language and, you know, same thing in the, in the first prosecutor prosecution job I took. Because it, it just didn't make sense, like the way the system operated. Like a lot of it to me was like counterintuitive. But then, you know, kind of like we were talking about law school, like after you're there, after you've kind of figured things out. Um, I remember a judge, Judge Gaines, pulled me to the side one day and she was like, you realize you have all the power in the courtroom, right? I was like, what do you mean? 
She was like, you're the one who gets to decide what happens with the case. You get to make the plea recommendation. If you want to dismiss the case, you can. If you want to put somebody in the diversion program, you can. You can even create your own diversion if it falls within the guidelines of the law, like in order for somebody to earn a dismissal. So after she gave me that, then I took off. I mean, I, I knew some of it was going to come with some backlash, kind of going against you know some of the, the policies of the office. But I'm like, at the end of the day, this is my bra license that, you know, I, I, I care about protecting my bra license and I care about, you know, my reputation and I care about doing what I think is right. And I felt like a lot of times, you know, the system just cared about money or cared about statistics. And I was like, no, nah, I ain't with that. And so, um, yeah, man, that job was like it, it was it was a rough job because I mean, it, it a lot of volume, you know, just a lot of work, but, you know, met a lot of cool people in that job, you know, and, you know, did a lot of good work, man. I think I, I really hope that I hope change a lot of folks' lives. So on your website, I, I like this. You say being a prosecutor with heart means knowing when to bring the full weight of justice to the dangerous and the corrupt and when to give someone a second chance. And I, I wholeheartedly agree with that statement. So let me ask you this. How do you determine who deserves that second chance and who should have the full weight of justice thrust upon them? There's a couple of things you look at. Like one was our criminal history. I mean, I I think with all of us, you know, what you've done in the past, that's like your reputation, right? Like if, you know, if I know your reputation is to, to, you know, commit violent crimes or to keep selling drugs, whatever it is, then more likely or not, <laughs> you're going to keep doing what you know for doing versus somebody who may not have, you know, a criminal history. Like this is their first, you know, maybe second time getting in trouble. Like there's still some hope for them. Like if, if you, if you give them some hope and, sh- and show them that they can believe in themselves, they'll potentially go with it versus somebody who, you know, you've been you've been a danger to our community or you, you've been doing these things for a long time or, you know, we started talking about the more serious crimes. Like, you know, you touch a little kid or, you know, violate a woman or, you know, kill somebody. Obviously, you know, there's not even do about that kind of stuff. But um, to me, my soft spot was was the kids, man. You know, that I would say 17, 18, 19, 20, 21. You know, the kids in that age range who reminded me a lot of myself at that age, like they were trying to figure out who they were in life. Like, are are you a street guy or, you know, could you be something more than that? You know, are you a product of your environment or, or, you know, do you have the ability to be the change agent for your environment? So, you know, a lot of times I would try to read between the lines, like not just what I had in that police report or on that, that, that criminal history. And, uh, you know, the, I, I think my biggest success story, I mean, I remember with this kid, like I, I actually took him out of the courtroom and a lot of them, you know, we would go outside the courtroom and just have like a face to face. So I think when you're talking to somebody face to face, you know, you can read body language. You kind of know when somebody's BSing you, uh, just the vibe you get, like, you know, all of that, I would take all of that into account. And well, sometimes I'm like, man, stop lying to me. <laughs> like, I know you lying. I know you BSing. Well, I can't do nothing for you, but the folks who I felt like, 
um, genuinely wanted an opportunity to show that they didn't want this label on them for the rest of their lives. Like, you know, this conviction would, would really deter them from being whatever they could potentially be. I was like, okay, I can, I can work with you, but I would, I know some prosecutors who just didn't care and they would just, you know, some, some would go to the max and like, we're going to fight this tooth and nail. Some would be like, man, I don't got time for this and let it go. But I was like, nah, I want you to show yourself that you want to change. So I would always create something that kind of went along with where the person was for them to earn it. Um, and, and most times, not all the time, most times they would come through. So with some of these prosecutors, what, what do you think the issue is? Do you think a lot of them, they're, they have an inability, inability to be, to look at it objectively. Do you think it's that they lack a certain life experience um, to understand? They lack compassion. What, what, what do you think the issue is? I think it's all of that. I think the biggest issue though is that, I mean, it, it's a numbers game, right? It's a money game. It's when you, if you pay attention to like local DA races, or not even a race. I would say pay attention to local DAs. A lot of them will harp on whatever their conviction rate is. And I remember before becoming an attorney, you know, lawyer TV shows or lawyer movies that would always show the prosecutor running around with, yeah, I got a 94% conviction rate. You know, people would, would always play on those numbers because they think that translates into, oh, like I'm tough on crime or I'm doing this to keep our community safe. Where in my eyes, I, I think that it plays a role into our communities being not as safe as they could be. Here's what I mean by that. Let's say I commit a crime where I steal this water bottle, right? Mm -hmm. It's my first offense. I've never been in trouble before. And you as a prosecutor, you have the ability to put me into a diversion program where I can get a dismissal, you know, and go to school, get a job, whatever. But you want a you want a 100% conviction rate, right? So you're like, programs are off the table. We're tough on crime. We're convicting whoever comes through these doors. Or you take us to trial and you win that trial. So now I enter a plea. You get your 100% conviction rate. Now I have this conviction on my record. So when I leave out of this door and I go apply for a job and I, I have to check, yes, when it asks me, have I ever been convicted of a crime before? Now I can't get a job. So what happens? Well, rent's about to be due. Bills are, are due. Got to feed these kids. Now I got to go steal another bottle of water. Right. So now I get caught again. Now you want to call me a recidivist. Yep. Now you want to call me a repeat offender. So you, you kind of create this hamster wheel of folks feeling like they don't have an opportunity, I think, sometimes by being so tough on convictions, where now let's reverse that story. I steal this bottle of water. It's my first time being in trouble. You look at my record. You have a face-to-face -face conversation with me. You find out, like, yeah, man, you know, I want to go to art school. Like, I'm, I'm trying, but just in that moment, I didn't have anything. Baby needed this water. I, yeah, I stole it. All right, look, I want you to do this program where, you know, 
you have to go show me that you took the SAT. You have to show me that you applied to colleges. You have to show you have to do some work to show me you're working towards your goal, right? Mm-hmm. Now I'm giving you an opportunity to still have the life you say you want to have. And guess what that does? The crime rate that the other prosecutor was so worried about and keeping a hundred percent conviction rate, but now they've just created a lifelong criminal who's going to keep cr- committing crimes. Now we just gave this person an opportunity. And once they have their job, they're going to be a, a contributing member of society. They're not going to be committing crime. They're actually going to help, you know, property values and business and, and school system range. They're going to help all of that go up because there's somebody who's going to be, they may be a business owner. They may be a property owner. They're going to have kids in these schools in this neighborhood now. So I think there are two different ways to look at how we operate the justice system with folks in that kind of situation. Now, you know, if, if that person shot somebody, they robbed somebody, they molested a kid, they raped somebody, they killed some, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, you got you got to go sit down. Yep. There's no program for you. Like, I, so I, I definitely drew a line on that. Like, there's... I, I don't have a program for you if you touch this seven-year-old kid. Like, right. I think you should go do life in prison. But if you stole this bottle of water, let's put you on a program. Let's try to help you change your life. So that's – so I answer your question. You know, I think some prosecutors – and I'll just speak about the ones that I worked with. I, you know, I won't even say nationwide. But, I, you know, I saw a lot of them who were just driven by that number um, – once you start moving up the chart, you know, from the head person or down to like the, the deputies, you know, they know what it means financially. Like if we keep a certain number of bodies in the county jail or if we keep um, if we say that our conviction rate is this, you know, what that might mean <clears throat> to potential donors when it's reelection time, you know, all of that, man. It's a that's why I said it's a numbers game. It's a money game. But to me, I'm like, these are people we're talking about. These are not numbers on the file. These are not numbers for a donation. These are not percentages for, you know, for 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 money coming in. This is not, you know, 19SC2023B. This is Christian Wise Smith. You know, this is this is a person, like not a number. So I mean, that's how I looked at every case. Even even the the more serious ones. You still gotta look at them like a person, even though you know. You know, you're going to the max on it. Yeah, I think I think one of the things <clears throat> that people often overlook with diversion is that often it addresses the root cause, right? So let's say somebody commits a crime. Yes, a crime is committed, but let's look at why that crime was committed. Maybe this person has a drug problem, maybe this person has an alcohol problem, maybe this person has mental health issues, and now they're aware of it. There's no there's no arguing against it. They can address that issue and that will eliminate the root cause from it happening in the future. And then, as you said, they then become a productive member of society, continue to contribute. They've been scared straight. If you look at door number two, you're not addressing that root cause. You're you're penalizing them and then you're making their life worse when they come back out and the, the cycle is just going to repeat itself. Man, you sound like me when I ran for office. <laughs> well, you get it. Well, let's talk about this. So that that's one thing I loved 
uh, following along with. Uh, I would have loved to move to Atlanta so I could have personally voted for you. But uh, <laughs> let, let's talk about your uh, you had a, you had a couple of runs for office, right? District yeah. attorney and attorney general. Correct. Yeah. Let's talk about that. So the DA race was in 2020. And uh, I got to tell the story first. There was a kid I had in court in 2013 named Justin Martin. He was 17 years old, senior in high school. He got arrested for marijuana. And, you know, I remember looking at his criminal record. This is the first time in trouble. He's in court with his mom. He's one of these kids I said, you know, I took to the back, had the conversation with him. And he's telling me that he wants to play in the NFL. And his mom is telling me, like, yeah, you know, he's really good. Like, he's got some opportunities. And she's just like, you know, I'm scared. He's throwing it all down the drain now. And, you know, like I mentioned earlier, too, like, I could see myself in him. Could tell he's trying to figure out who he is. You know, he's got a couple of tattoos. He got his pants hanging down. But I can tell he's not like a street dude for real. So go in front of the judge and I say, hey, Your Honor, if he, I want to see him raise his GPA. I want to see him do some community service. Not just like going to like a homeless shelter or going to pick up trash. Like I want to see him do like something real to like really help somebody else change their life. And I want to see him take two classes on drugs. One, on what using drugs and I didn't mean just marijuana. I just meant like, like harder drugs, what can they, what they can do to you. But also what selling drugs in a community could do to you, to our communities, Black communities. If he does all these, all these things, I'll dismiss his case. I want him to come back in 30, 60, 90 days, and on 90 days, we'll throw it out. When I did that, my immediate supervisor just went off on me. So, oh, that's a slam dunk conviction. We could have got a $1,000 fine off that case. Revenue in the city is down. Our conviction rates keep going down because y'all keep dismissing. Case. I mean, just going off. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, you coming at me about $1,000 and a conviction percentage when we just gave this 17-year-old young Black man an opportunity to not be on a hamster wheel and us not seeing him in felony court next year. So it, will, what, will, he, will he take this opportunity and do good with it? We don't know yet, but let's give him a chance. So a year later, the kid's mom sends me an email. Uh, she says, I don't know if you remember me. Last year, you gave my son a chance. I want to tell you thank you. He's at a junior college in Oklahoma, doing great in the classroom, great on the football field. Man, broke down crying reading that, man. Um, 2015, she called me. Said, hey, it's me again. You know, my son transferred to the University of Tennessee. Has a chance to start. It's called to tell you thank you. Wow. 2016, she called again. She said, man, you got to come to a game. We wouldn't be here without you. You got to come. Tennessee, Nayland Stadium, you know, the, the sear orange with all these – Tennessee Vols. So Good old Rocky Top, right? Rocky Top. So uh, they actually played my alma mater that year, Ohio University. So my kids and I went 
to a game in Tennessee when they played OU. His senior year, I went to three of his games. They opened up the new Mercedes-Benz Stadium here against Georgia Tech, went up to Tennessee for a game, drove to Alabama for a game. Uh, but most significantly, I went to his college graduation, 2018. Saw him walk across that stage, get a degree. Kid came to my wedding. You know, he had the opportunity to go to training camp with the Kansas City Chiefs. Made the team, but he, he tore his ACL and they cut him. Um, but now he's in the uh, the new XFL league that's coming back with The Rock. Uh, he signed with one of the XFL teams. But getting to your point about me running for office, that's why I ran for office. Because when I did that for him, I got reprimanded. I got yelled at. I got threatened to be fired. And so my whole my theme or my slogan for that campaign was people over conviction rates. Because I'm like, this is what we can do if we really take our time and really care about the people in the justice system versus the numbers and the conviction rates. What happened with that campaign, though, that none of us saw coming was COVID. So I launched that campaign like February 2020, then in March, you know, the end of March is when everything got shut down with COVID. And so I, we had only had like one like in-person campaign event. So, you know, this being my first time running for office and learning the ropes and trying to get out there, I wasn't able to do any of the, the traditional things that people do in campaigns, you know, go knock on doors, you know, have events. So everything became virtual. So um, I wasn't on Instagram before running for office in 2020. So I started doing these things on Wednesdays called Wise Up Wednesday. Um, I got the attention of somebody who was connected to a lot of like the, the Atlanta hip hop community. So the first person that I did or the first famous person that I did an IG Live with was a rapper named Lil Marlo who who got killed later in 2020. Lil Marlowe was with Quality Control Records. Like he came up with Lil Baby. If you know anybody's seen a Lil Baby documentary on Amazon, you know, they talk about Marlowe, you know, for, for a good uh, amount of time in that documentary and how he came up with Baby. So Marlowe was like my first, I guess, kind of step into like really getting getting the support of you know the Atlanta hip hop community. Then um, I got introduced to Parlay from them franchise boys. And when we met in person, it was like, he, he was like somebody I knew my whole life, just like instant bond, instant connection. And so I'm like, man, I, so by this time, it's it's like end of May, going into June, the election was in June. So, you know, it, it was summertime. So folks were kind of coming outside, but even though, you know, there was no vaccine, but people were just tired of being cooped up in the house. So I was like, man, I want to do something that's never been done before. Like, I want to do something historic. So we organized uh, the first, and to this point, the only ever protest march down Bankhead. And so Bankhead is, I mean, it's a famous street in Atlanta. It's talked about in rap songs all the time. Uh, but it's in a very, you know, impoverished part of town. So like Bankhead is not like the pretty side of Atlanta. So you never see politicians going to Bankhead. You never really see movies or anything shot on Bankhead. But we organized in, in a day. 
protest march where we got like three or four hundred people to come out. T.I. came out. Comedian Desi Banks came out. A lot of, you know, rappers from Atlanta, like Shop Boys franchise, but like a lot of those folks came out. D4L. Um, but, you know, and this is just me, you know, kind of Monday morning morning quarterbacking. I think it was all like too late. Like I, it, this was all like a week before the election where I got, you know, endorsed by T.I., Lil Baby, Usher, and all of those folks. And I was the least known candidate in that race. I was the youngest candidate in that race. And I had significantly less money than the other people in that race because I actually stopped fundraising once COVID broke out. You know, folks were losing their jobs. People were getting laid off. My wife actually got laid off during that time. And I was like, I think I would look like a jerk calling somebody, asking them to make a campaign contribution where I don't know their life situation right now. So that was that race in 2020, man. But, you know, it, it, it was purely motivated just by it was, it was all heart and soul was what I tell people. Let, let me ask you a question about that experience. I don't know if you ever had him. Professor Burleson, he taught uh, law office management. He was the solo practitioner that was teaching you how to be a solo. His number one recommendation was always run for office. And he said, the worst thing that could happen is you win. And what, what he said, what, what he meant by that was the journey in itself was such an enriching experience between what you learn, the people you meet, uh, the knowledge that you gain, all of that stuff. W- would you agree with that assessment? Yeah, absolutely, man. Like that, that race has changed my life in, in a lot of ways um, because of the people I met. You know, one of my, you know, I would say great mentors now uh, is Shaka Zulu, who is Ludacris' manager, who, you know, he's he's going through some stuff right now, but he did a lot to to change my life after we got connected. I mean, he, he took me to L.A. and I got to meet Clarence Avon, who's known as the Black Godfather, you know, Clarence Avon was super instrumental in Jimmy Carter becoming president, uh, Bill Clinton, Barack Obama. Um, and there's a documentary about him on Netflix called The Black Godfather. And in this documentary, Bill Clinton's in it, Barack Obama's in it, Kamala Harris is in it. And I mean, it's so that, that just goes to show you like how much influence and how much power and how, how significant this guy has been and, you know, now I find myself at his house and, you know, we went to lunch at the Polo Lounge at Beverly Hills Hotel. And I'm like, you know, this guy has made or helped make, you know, three presidents. And now he's pouring into me and, you know, giving me some wisdom and his two cents on things that I need to be doing, you know, to you know accomplish what my ultimate goal is, which is being a president of the United States one day. So, yeah, man, none of that would have happened if I didn't run for office in 2020, you know, the, the kids book that I wrote about voting, that, that, the idea for that was birthed out of that meeting I had with, with Mr. Clarence Avon. So yeah, man, that was a, I didn't, I did not take law office management at Cooley, but yeah, that, I agree with that sentiment wholeheartedly, man. Definitely. So let's talk about the attorney general race. <clears throat> yeah. So the AG race was, the AG race was the eye opener for me about 
politics. I think you know it's about money. But in this race, is like when I found out, really. Um, but So well, let me get to why I decided to run for it. So after the DA race and kind of making a little bit of noise and getting some, some people, um, I would say, open to a little bit more progressive approaches in the South, because you got to remember, Georgia is still very much the South. I think people always see Atlanta and for whatever, you know, all of Atlanta's greatness. But the outside of Atlanta, <laughs> you're reminded very quickly you're still in a southern state. And so that was going to be the challenge in running for attorney general is that it was a statewide race, meaning I would have to, you know, build up some more stuff outside of just what I had in Atlanta. But I, I was confident that I could do it. I thought that I would have the ability to do it. Um, but money really became, I would say, the the number one hindrance in that race. What you know, which was the eye opener for me. It's like, okay, you know, I have to, I have to do a little bit more work. I have to put in more time. I need more relationships. I need more networks across the state, um, and just understanding how how the power of money really moves campaigns is the person I ran against in a primary. I mean, she had like 2 million bucks and I think I only raised like a hundred grand. Um, but we got 22% of the vote. So I, I think that goes to show that like people really identify and connect with my message, but you just have to have the money to reach, you know, more and more people. So I'm like, man, we got 22% of the vote you know, off of a hundred grand up against 2 million, think what would have happened if we would have had like a quarter million, like, you know what I mean? Like, so, yeah. um, but I learned a lot in that race too. And and like the first race, you know, I, now I have some friends and some good relationships in other places outside of Atlanta. Uh, got, got locked in with some really cool people down in Savannah, Georgia, Fort Valley, Georgia, Augusta, Georgia. So, you know, we're just building for the next one, man. We're just building off of really what I would say are, are pure motivations and pure intent. Like my my whole thing is just about the the change that we can that we can bring about to be better human beings, to be better people. And you know, the reason I ran for attorney general is because that job has um, it, it's not all criminal like the DA's office is, but the attorney general you know, obviously supervises and does stuff with with the prosecutors. The attorney general, you know, played a big role in uh, the Ahmaud Arbery case here after the initial DA, you know, tainted that case and did the illegal things that she did. You know, the attorney general came in and, you know, is holding her accountable, then reassigned the case to another DA. But the attorney general also has a lot, you know, to do with, um, all things civil in the state, you know, how we, you know, the, the contracts that come through the state, you know, the, 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 all the different state departments. So I just looked at it, looked at running for that seat as an opportunity to really transform uh, how business is done in, in Georgia in the Southern state. And I was hoping that that would have like a positive ripple effect across other Southern states. The Southern states are always, you know, education, uh, infant mortality rate, uh, obesity, poverty. I mean, Southern states are always, always at the bottom 
And so, you know, I was hoping it really sparked some some positive change uh, here in Georgia. And I felt like Georgia was the best place to do it because of Atlanta, because of how much influence Atlanta has, not just on the South, but around the world. You know, I thought it was perfect time to do it, to build off of the momentum we built in the DA race. But, you know, ended up being a learning lesson that, uh, you know, we'll take into whatever it is that I run for next. So I have to ask this question. You don't have to engage if you if you don't want to. Uh, Herschel Walker. <laughs> uh, what, what, what are your, your boots on the ground? So what are what is your assessment of that whole situation? Man. Herschel Walker's he's not only bad for Georgia, I mean, he's bad for the country, man. I mean, think about if we have that guy in D.C. with the, the, the power to have influence over things that will impact all of us where, you know, we're going to be relying on that guy's vote for you name it, healthcare, uh, education, whatever. I mean, you know, I've never had the opportunity to meet him. So, you know, I, I can't speak about anything, you know, personal or anything that I know about him like that. But just, you know, like most people, the stuff you hear about, the stuff he says in interviews, uh, the things that have come out about his past. Um, I, I really want to know his motivation for running for office. I mean, I, you know, I don't know what his motivation was, knowing that so much negativity will come out. but. You know, I, I think Warnock is, you know, the the only option. You know, nobody's perfect, obviously, but you know, Warnock is at least <laughs> sane and rational and you know, <laughs> reasonable. <coughs> excuse me, reasonable. Where I think Herschel Walker is, well, I think Herschel Walker is, is a perfect like case study, though just to show, I think kind of like Donald Trump was, just to show how popularity influences politics. Because, you know, Herschel Walker is a football legend in Georgia, you know, and and I think so many people are not looking at, oh, Herschel Walker is going to have the ability to make, you know, life-impacting decisions for us. They're looking at him as, oh, no, that's Herschel Walker, the, the Heisman winner. That's Herschel Walker, the the football hero, like, yeah, we love Herschel. We wear it's like, no, like now we're talking about Herschel Walker, the potential senator. <laughs> like, forget what he did in football. You all understand that you want to give him the power to make these these calls. Um, yeah, man, I, I I really don't understand the guy's motivation for doing what he's doing, but you know, hopefully, hopefully things uh will come out in Warnock's favor in November. And, you know, I'll I'll even go as far as to say, I I think that Warnock may be the only Democrat on the ticket in November who who can win. You know, the the primary numbers were, you know, if they hold true, you know, the the Republicans came out and voted, you know, in, in stronger and bigger numbers than Democrats did in the primary. But I think that, even Republicans are, are kind of like, for the reasons I just said, like, I don't know if we want to give this guy the, the, the power to make these kind of calls on our behalf. So. It's, it's interesting you 
you drew a parallel to Trump. I think I think it's good good parallel in the sense that politics has this way I can sell anyone, right? So Donald Trump, you say he's an outsider. He's a businessman. He built this empire. Look what he's going to go in there and disrupt. With Herschel Walker, you mentioned the football thing, but I think his story cuts a lot deeper than that. If you if you were to sell him, right, you say, here's a kid that was bullied. Here's a kid that, like, through grit and determination, became a legend in Georgia. Here's a, here's a guy that decided to take up bobsledding and made the, the, the team. Here's the guy that decided to take MMA. And then people take all that good and attribute to what they're going to do as a politician. And it, it can be a good thing, but it can also be a very dangerous thing because, like you said, there's Herschel Walker, the athlete, and then there's Herschel Walker, the politician, Correct. and they're not at all the same thing. Yeah, good point, though. I, I didn't even think about it the way you just broke it down. Like, people look at those accomplishments and, I guess, overcoming what he had to overcome to, you know, to obtain those accomplishments and, and translate it into him overcoming things in the political world. But, you know, I think overcoming things like with your body, you know, the training that goes in the MMA and bobsledding and football, you know, those are all physical. You know, what there's obviously there's mental to it as well. I'm not saying that there isn't, but you know, the majority of that is like physical versus, you know, being in the U.S. Senate <laughs> and having to read through, you know, thousand page long bills. And, you know, I, I just don't see how that how it how it transfers. But now nah, I appreciate you breaking it down like that, because maybe maybe that is why so many people are willing to give him a shot. And in, in terms of his motivation, I, I think what I just said is, is where, where I'm going with this. I think it would it would have been easy to sell him on it. Right. Because obviously he's someone that has taken on endeavors and put a lot of effort into it and he's getting up there in age. So I think he's recognized, all right, the physical thing is behind him. Like, I suppose he could run Ironmans or something like that, but (laughs) that that sort of thing is behind him. So someone probably was told, look at all these things you can do, you know, and built him up and he bought into it and put it is putting his weight into it, obviously backed by lots of various parties. And and I, I would say that's the motivation that he's a t- determined guy. Someone sold him on this dream and now he's moving forward with it. So, so speaking of selling, uh, here's the opportunity that I'd like to give to all my guests for you to promote anything you want, your, your, your legal services, your cause, a, a children's book that you wrote in the past, any of your future project uh, projects, whatever you got going on, the time is yours, Christian. I appreciate that. Um, so yeah, first thing is a kid's book I wrote. It's called uh, Wise Up Adventure Series, Chris and Key Go Vote. You can find it on amazon.com or uh, something really cool, or at least I think it's cool that we, we've done with the book. I also have a nonprofit organization called uh, the National Social Justice Alliance, uh, NSJA.org. Uh, we created a community outreach program called Voting is a Superpower, where you know money donated through the nonprofit, we're able to go into schools on low-income areas and actually give away the book for free. 
We give away the book to, to the kids there along with a backpack full of supplies. Uh, we throw a pizza party for the whole school and we also give the teachers an appreciation gift card. Uh, we've done that in a couple of schools here in Georgia, in my hometown in Cincinnati. Um, I'm doing a school in Nashville this year. So uh, you can buy the book yourself or make a donation, get the tax write off and help us give it away for free. Uh, if you're in the Atlanta area, I just started my own law firm now, uh, primarily focusing on personal injury. Uh, I'm trying to transition away from doing criminal cases, but because of my relationship with a lot of entertainers, you know, I'm doing some stuff in that world too, some contract stuff and some, there's some other things that entertainers need. Uh, the website is wisesmithlaw.com or you can go to accidentatl.com to check that out. And other than that, subscribe to this podcast. <laughs> like it, share it. Uh, I think this podcast is really cool because it, you know, for for lawyers, you know, I think hearing about the law school journey or kind of like a superhero movie, our origin story, you know, I think this is really dope. You know, I've done, you know, I don't know how many interviews at this point now, but I've you know, I never got some of the questions that you threw at me today. So uh, thanks for having me, man. This is a really dope show. You know, I pray, you know, much success along your journey, you know, for what you want to do with this. And I hope you make an impact. And, you know, if any any future, you know, lawyers are listening, you know, you're listening to two guys who, who made it uh, so you can make it and live out your dreams. Make it happen. Thanks, Christian. And be sure to send me all those links. I'm going to put them in the show notes uh, um, so that people can access them as well. If they didn't catch the URLs that you provided, they'll have easy access to that. In terms of dreams that you talked about, you just came back from Italy, as I understand. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, you, you posted something. You, uh, I think it was you and your wife talking about how's, uh, you know, for, from your neighborhood to Italy, like how it was uh, an amazing journey that, that you've made it this far in life. And, you know, there's a lot more to go, but uh, any, anything to share about that, that experience? So what's super cool about you just saying like from my neighborhood to Italy. So in the post or the, the reel I made on Instagram for that, the song playing in the background is called every cloud. It's in my top 10, you know, all-time favorite songs. The song is made by my cousin, who I mentioned to you earlier. His real name is Marcus. His rap name is Lantana. But in that, you know, we're from a neighborhood in Cincinnati called College Hill. And so in that song, he says, you know, I swear them people going to remember me, feel my energy from College Hill to Italy. And so that's why I put that song with, with that post. But... You know, growing up how I did, man, you know, nobody went overseas. Like it was, everybody was struggling, you know, struggling, hustling, just trying to, trying to make it to the next day. And so, you know, I've been fortunate enough now, you know, every time I, I get a chance to go abroad, you know, I'm just grateful. You know, it, it's, it's always a moment for me where I kind of look back to where I started to where I am. Um, you know, I remember the, the very first time I went, I don't even know if you can call going to Canada abroad, but <laughs> I, 
I remember the first time I got my passport though, you know, was it was to go to Canada to go to, you know, one of my friends from law school, Raha Tarabi. She got, she's from Toronto. She got married up there and I went to her wedding. Um, but then, you know, been in Paris, been in Jamaica. And it's like, when I, when you go out, go overseas to me, it's just always a moment to reflect, man. Just knowing that, you know, most of my family and friends haven't seen places like that and haven't had the ability to do it. But, you know, fortunately, because of um, this life that God has chosen for me um, and, and my wife, you know, her being, you know, part of God's plan for my wife as well. Um, you know, just grateful in those moments. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. You, you brought up at the beginning of the story, and I, I think this is what I took out of it, right? <clears throat> this whole concept back in the day, there were people that you grew up with, and they aspired to be essentially hood rich, right? Like be a big fish in a small pond in the neighborhood. Um, but you saw beyond it, you somehow had the foresight to think beyond that, or eventually you just got led beyond it. And it's taken you to a college town and, and enjoying this, you know, the animal house experience that you only saw in movies. <laughs> and it's, it, it's taken you to another, another metropolitan city in Atlanta and all that has to offer. And it's taken you to law school where you met all sorts of different people in different stages of their life. And it's taken you abroad to Italy to see things that you probably couldn't even comprehend and your pictures don't do justice to. Um, and it, it, I think it's, it's great for people to, to think that way because there's just so much to this world, isn't there? Definitely, man. It's, um, there's levels to life. And I think, you know, if, if you're stuck on one level, sometimes it's hard to see the next level, but I think it all starts with a dream, man. All you got to do is dare to dream. And once you start dreaming and once you start having a desire to, to do more and see more and be more, I mean, that's where everything starts. Like, you know, th think about this platform that we're, we're talking on now, Zoom. This was somebody's idea before it existed. Um, you know, your show, this podcast, like this was your idea. And then you put the, the, the steps in motion to make it come to fruition. So, yeah, man, there's you know, growing up you know, I can remember, you know, being a kid and that was the only world that I knew because that's that's all you know. That's all you see. But, you know, as I've gotten older and gotten exposed to more and met so many, you know, been blessed to meet, you know, I got a couple billionaires on my phone. You know what I mean? Like that's just coming from, you know, College Hill in Cincinnati and and. and all the stuff I saw growing up, man, like never would have imagined that. So, yeah, I mean, <laughs> you rub elbows with some of the finest. I've seen you <laughs> hanging out with Vince Carter and all, all sorts of people that I would love to just shake their hands. So uh, it's been great. Yeah, I, you know, I don't I'm I'm all like I said, I always grateful for those moments, man. Sometimes, you know, I have those moments where I'm like, dang, like. You know, why me? I definitely had those moments where I got to play it cool because I want to be a super fan. But it's like, nah, you got to act like you've been here. You got to act like you belong. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, as I, I, I'll, I'll tell you a story, man. Um, that was a, was a super great moment for me. So 
I'm having lunch at Ludacris's house with Luda, uh, Shaka, and the mayor of, of the city where Luda lives. And, you know, the lunches, you know, private chef, all of that, man. <laughs> and, I, <laughs> and, I, and I'm just sitting here just like, wow, like, I can remember being 17 years old, like, at a concert when Luda first came out. He opened up for Outkast. And I remember, you know, buying and, and listening to his album back for the first time. And it's like, but well, now I'm in his house, like eating lunch with him. You know what I'm like? It's just like one of those moments where, and then just even in our conversation, man, like he, <laughs> I can't tell the whole story, but it's like, you know, he, he knows uh, some people that I know. So, you know, it, it just, I don't take the moments for granted, man. And, you know, I just always thank God for, um, put me in a position because I know the, I know the position that I'm in. I know that the reason that I've gotten to shake the hands or rub the elbows or get into the houses or rooms that I'm in is because of my education. It's because I'm an attorney and it's being, being a lawyer, you know, like I mentioned, you know, earlier in this, in this interview, having a JD degree, like that will always get us into rooms that other people can't get in because I don't care what you do. I don't care if you are, a number one selling artist, if you are a, a movie star, if you own businesses, if you are a professional athlete, if you are a dentist, if you work at Starbucks, they all need a lawyer. They all gonna have a legal question. They all need some advice about a contract or a parking ticket or a speeding ticket or a, uh, a, a criminal case or whatever it is like they. And that's what I, I found myself just being in the center of that. I remember, you know, the, the I won't say who they are, but the one of the billionaires on my phone, I remember, like, you know, their, their son got in some trouble. And I remember thinking to myself, like, you know, why me? Like, why, why am I the person that's being, that's in this position where I have the ability to help them? And it's like, it's because of my education and it's because of other relationships that, relationships that I've built and my reputation that I care about protecting and, and, and making sure that it's solid. You know, when that happened, they said, call Wise, call Christian Wise. Like, he can help you out. And then when you get the call, you actually deliver and you help him out. And it's like, well, how much money do I owe you? Like, you don't owe me nothing. Well, I, I owe you something. You help my son. Nah, I just want a relationship with you. Be my mentor. Like, let's go to lunch once a month. Like, teach me about money. Teach me about, you know, that's, that's how you do it, man. And it's yeah, you, you sound like someone I admire. From the Bay Area, his name he goes he goes by the name of Too Short, right? And, uh, <laughs> he once he once said, "Get your kids in school and find an occupation. Get a degree and then take a vacation." And it it sounds like uh, that's the path you chose. So uh, it's good good philosophy to live by. Definitely, <laughs> uh, Christian. Um, I was hoping to get you for an hour, but we went we went Rogan on this, John. Uh, I, I really, really appreciate, as always, I, I know you talk like this when it's just you and I, but we're, we're going to, we're talking to a wider audience and I really appreciate you coming on, giving me all of your undivided time and just opening up on life. Um, this, this was an amazing uh, experience. I feel like we were together hanging out somewhere. Likewise, man. And so now when I mean, you came to the A4 game, I got to come up to Philly. We got to. You know what? But this uh this hoop season, I'm gonna I'm gonna come to Philly for a game. This hoop season. We'll uh, hey, to- I'm I'm walking distance, so we will we will go. It's it is a great time. 
to hang out there. Um, hopefully we get to see Embiid play. It is, it is nice and lively. You'll have a blast. Bet. Let's do it. We're going to do it this season. All right, Christian. Thank you for joining. To all my listeners, stay solid. And Piero Man, take us out. Need a lawyer? Are you having financial, criminal, or family challenges? Call or text the Mark Cocci Law Firm, 215-439-7899.